This morning, church, I invite you to take your Bible and join me at Proverbs 31. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Proverbs chapter 31, I want to read in your hearing verses 10 to 31. A wife of noble character who can find. She's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She's like a merchant ship, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes covering for her bed and she is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she has earned and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. The book of Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings. It is attributed to King Solomon, commonly known as the wisest man to have ever lived. The original recipient was the king's son. It was Mark Dever who said of the book of Proverbs that it is a training manual for young men. Just because it's a training manual for young men doesn't mean that only men are supposed to read the book of Proverbs. It is a reservoir of wisdom, not just for men, but also women, not just for young, but also old. In this book, you find numerous pithy, uh, practical statements to navigate everyday life. It's in the book of Proverbs that we are told is iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Elsewhere we learn that pride comes before the fall. And of course it's in Proverbs that I find my personal favorite, that as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his sinful folly. A proverb is a wise statement. It is a statement that generally tends to be the case. It must be understood that a proverb is not necessarily a promise. A proverb is merely a wise statement that's generally true. A classic example of this is 
Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. If for some reason you interpret that proverb as a promise, you just might have a problem on your hands. That verse that has been uh, misinterpreted for years has bludgeoned more than a few parents over the last 3,000 years. Numerous parents have said, I trained my child in the way he should go, and now he's old, and he's departed from it. I must have done something wrong. Well, maybe, or maybe not. You may have done everything you possibly could do to instill the truth of the gospel into the heart and mind of your child. Remember that a proverb is a wise statement that generally tends to be the case. In the book of Proverbs, this wisdom is bound and found more in relationships than intellect. What I mean is this, that the Proverbs is not just a set of of propositions that you and I are to believe. No, this wisdom is given to us through relationships. And primarily in Proverbs, there are three relationships that serve as conduits of this wisdom. First and foremost is your relationship with God. Very early on in chapter 1, the author says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise discipline. In chapter 3, it says, For we are to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. If you want to be wise, if you want to live a life of wisdom, that wisdom is first and foremost foundationally found in God. You must have a relationship with God that is personal and that is passionate. But there's a a second conduit of this wisdom. It's your relationship with your parents. One of the most common words all throughout Proverbs is the word listen. It's a father saying to his son, listen. Now listen to me. Listen up, son. Mom and dad, does that sound familiar? It is a father who routinely says to his child, listen to the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Now, more than a few of us can identify with Mark Twain. It was Mark Twain who famously said that when I was 13, my dad was the dumbest person on planet Earth. But then, When I became 21, I was astounded at how much the old man had learned in eight years. As we live through adolescence, our parents may not seem to be the wisest people in the world. But the older we get, the more we appreciate them. While we're living under their roof, there are times when we resist and rebel against mom and dad. But young person, let me tell you this morning that there is wisdom in their teaching. There is wisdom with you surrendering and submitting to their authority. The book of Proverbs tells us that first and foremost, wisdom is given to us through a relationship with God. But secondly, is this relationship that is paramount in our lives. It's the relationship that we have with our parents. Oh, but there's a third relationship that is constant in the book of Proverbs that gives us a source of wisdom. And it's the relationship that we have with our spouse. Now, specifically, in the book of Proverbs, is a relationship that a husband has with his wife. It is in the book of Proverbs that we read that wealth and houses are an inheritance from parents. But a prudent wife, a good wife, is a gift from the Lord. 
Throughout the book of Proverbs, there are pretty much two types of women. We could call them the wise woman and the foolish woman. The foolish woman is also called an adulteress. Elsewhere, she is called a quarrelsome wife. Solomon tells his son to avoid the foolish woman. Avoid the adulterous individual. Avoid the quarrelsome wife. In Proverbs chapters 5 and 6, it is the king who passionately tells his son to avoid the adulterous woman. He warns his son, saying that her lips drip with honey. Her speech is as smooth as oil, but in the end, she is as bitter as gall. Stay away from her son, the king implies. And then elsewhere, we are told that we are to stay away from that quarrelsome wife. We read of this in Proverbs chapter 19, that a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping. Brother, she will drive you insane. Stay away from the quarrelsome wife. In, in Proverbs chapter 21, we are told that it is better to live on the corner of a roof than to live in a house with a quarrelsome wife. So all throughout Proverbs, the king tells his son, choose wisely when it comes to your life mate. Choose wisely when it comes to your wife. When you get to the end of Proverbs chapter 31, what I just read for you, stands in stark contrast to much of what the king has said to his son as far as who to avoid. When you get to the end, Proverbs 31, we see this, this brilliant diamond in the rough. We see this beautiful portrait of a good wife, of an excellent wife, of a virtuous wife. The immediate context is verses 1 to 9 of chapter 31. It's there that the king introduces us to another king. His name is Lemuel. Now, i got to be honest with you, nobody knows the identity of King Lemuel. But King Lemuel was said to have had a, a lesson that was taught to him by his mom. He gives us this lesson in verses 1 to 9. And in essence, if I could just sum it up for you, the lesson that mama gave to Lemuel was simply this— through your life, stay away from immorality. Secondly, stay away from alcohol. And third, stay away from selfishness. Now on this Mother's Day, every mom I know would want to give that advice to their children. Children, stay away from sexual immorality. In the text of Proverbs 31, verses 1 to 9, it simply says, do not give your strength to women. Stay away from sexual promiscuity and immorality. Now, friends, let me just be honest with you. I've been in ministry for 20-some years, and as I'm approaching my 20th anniversary, I can tell you that I've had numerous conversations where people will tell me of their uh, sexual promiscuity, and after every one of those conversations, we all have to agree that was not a good decision. I never have a conversation with somebody, and at the end of it, when they tell me about their promiscuity or their immorality, where we conclude, you know what, that was a pretty good idea. Never. It never happens. So stay away from sexual immorality. In the same way, she says to her son, stay away from alcohol. For a king is not to give himself to wine. He is not to crave beer or fermented drink. Why? Because it will impair his judgment. So simply stay away from alcohol. This woman sounds like my mother. 
My mother told me all throughout my growing up years, if you never take a drink, you'll never become an alcoholic. That kind of sounds like the advice that the mother gives to King Lemuel. And then third and finally, she says to him, stay away from selfishness. You are not in your position as king to self selfishly serve yourself. You have been placed in that position so you can speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. So that you can defend the poor and the needy. If you want to fashion your life after uh, any three statements, I think those three would be pretty good. For you, my friend, to stay away from sexual immorality, to stay away from alcohol, to stay away from selfishness. Now, it's on the back porch of that instruction. It's on the tail end of those wise words that we find this poem, this epilogue, this addendum to uh, Proverbs 31. It, it's this P.S., postscript. It's a beautiful poem that the king gives to his son. And when you look at this, there are at least two things that immediately jump right off the page. The first is that these 22 verses serve as an acrostic. Now, it's hard to see in our English text, but it's evident and obvious in the Hebrew original language. For in Hebrew, there are 22 letters. This poem has 22 verses. Each successive verse begins with the next letter of the alphabet. Aleph, Bey, Gimel, Dalet, A, B, C, D. The author just goes straight through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, why does he do this? He does this so that what he writes can be easily memorized. But he also does this to give his son a complete teaching, a teaching from A to Z, everything you need to know about choosing the right wife. So the first thing that jumps off the page is that this is an acrostic. But the second thing that jumps off the page, which once again is, is clearer in Hebrew than it is in English, is that the author arranged this poem by using a literary device called a chiasm. A chiasm is a, is a tool of rhetoric that tries to point the reader to a specific bottom line in a very simple way. If we think of, of five statements, and if we want to arrange them in a, in a chiasm, we would label them A, B, C, B, A. And the first statement and the fifth statement would mirror each other. The second statement and the fourth statement would mirror each other. It would point us as the reader to that third statement that we called C. Well, this poem is an elaborate chiasm. And so what the author wants us to get to, the point that he wants to make is actually found in verse 23. Look at it with me. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. The king wants his son to know, listen, if you want to be respected, if, if you want to get somewhere in life, the only way you're going to get there is because you have a virtuous, noble wife that is supporting you. You can only get where you are in life because of her. She will either make you or break you. She will help you or harm you. She will delight you or destroy you. In our context, we would say that behind every great man is a great woman. This is what the author is telling his son. He's saying, listen, if, if you want to be well-respected, if you want a seat at the city gate, the city gate was a place where civic and uh, legal 
uh, decisions were made. And if you want a seat as an elder, if you want to be well-respected in the community and in the context, if you want to have a place of prominence, I want you to know you're not going to get there on your own because who you marry is going to either aid you or hinder you. So this chiastic structure points us to verse 23. And as I think about history, as I look back over church history, this is true. That behind every great man is a great godly gal. Luther would not have been Luther without Katie. And Spurgeon would not have been Spurgeon without Susanna. And Watkins would not be Watkins without Jane Ellen. You say, no, wait a minute. Did you just compare yourself to Luther and Spurgeon? Okay, maybe that's a little bit of a stretch. But I can tell you this much, that Jane Ellen is in perfect company with Mrs. Luther and Mrs. Spurgeon. Because behind every great guy is a great godly gal. This is what the author of the proverb is telling us. And so for the next few moments that we have together, I want us to try to walk through and unpack this beautiful poem, verses 10 to 31. Now here, I think there are at least five characteristics of a godly wife. Now, these characteristics are not gender specific. So these characteristics will be applied to men and women, young and old. But the application of the characteristics will be gender specific. So first and foremost, as you look at this beautiful poem, I want you to notice that the good wife possesses high character. First and foremost, high character. Verses 10, 11, and 12. A wife of noble character, who can find? And ladies, before you get upset, in Proverbs chapter 20, it says equally that it's really hard to find a good man. Can I get an amen? So it's equally hard to find a good man as it is to find a good wife. So a wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Another translation of rubies could be jewels. And in those days, the highest form of currency were gold and jewels. What the author is saying is that a good wife, a godly wife, she is more valuable than the most lucrative bank account you could ever have. She is worth far more than all the rubies in the world. Her husband has full confidence in her and he lacks nothing of value. The most important relationship in the home is a relationship between a husband and his wife. That relationship is paramount. And the bedrock of that relationship is trust. When trust is breached, suspicion will always creep. So every time uh, that there's been a, a breaching of trust, there will always be a question in the back of the spouse's mind, can I really trust you? This husband says that he has full confidence in her. He absolutely lacks nothing. The pediatrician that we had in Kentucky when Molly Grace was born was Dr. Wilkes. And I'll never forget the day that Dr. Wilkes sat us down. We had taken Molly Grace in for a really early checkup. And he sat us down and, and spoke to me and Jane Ellen and said, the greatest gift you can give to your children is a strong marriage. This was coming from a doctor. And he said, the greatest gift you can give to your children is a strong marriage. For your child to always know 
Mommy loves daddy, and daddy loves mommy. For mom and dad to love each other, for your children to have embedded in them this bedrock solid truth that mom and dad love each other. How is that possible, mom and dad? Because of trust. We have full confidence in each other, the, psalm, the uh, writer of Proverbs says. And he lacks nothing. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She helps. She doesn't hurt. She delights. She doesn't destroy. This man can trust his wife. She's not going to cheat on him. She's not going to be unfaithful to him. She's not going to talk him down uh, when she's around her friends. She's not going to run up the credit card bills in frivolous spending. He can trust her. It was John MacArthur who said that in these days, whenever a husband went on a trip, he normally had to lock up the valuables because it wasn't uncommon for the wife to take some of those valuables and to sell them for her own spending. And here the author tells us that this husband, um, he has nothing to fear for she brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. This is a woman of great character. She has high character, not just on her wedding day, but every day. And all the days of her life, she sees it as a joy to share life and share faith with her husband. This is a person who has high character. Second, the good wife possesses deep devotion. Look with me at verses 13 and following. This woman who has deep devotion selects wool and flax. She works with eager hands. She's like a merchant ship bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. This woman doesn't just declare devotion. She displays it. She displays it by her actions. Long before anything she says, it is obvious by how she lives her life that she is deeply devoted to her family. She's devoted to her husband. She's devoted to her children. She's even devoted to the servant girls that are under her custody. She is devoted to the household of faith. She's devoted to her family. Now, I know that probably you've been taught and told that women in this day were nothing more than property. And while that's true in some cultures, it was never true in Israel. Israel was a peculiar people. Israel, they were different than every other nation. And while it's true that in many parts of the world, and even today in some parts of the world, women are seen as nothing more than property, it was never the case in Israel. For in Israel, we are told by God, that both men and women are made in the image of the Lord. They have the imago Dei, the image of God. They are equal in value and worth. And in fact, in these days, that the, the wife was seen as one with her husband. So this woman who has rights and has some freedom, albeit she did not have the right to choose her husband, but her husband had a great deal of choice in his wife. But even at that, she had a great deal of choice and responsibility and freedom. And so she joyfully served her family. She selects wool and flax. That's the ingredients for thread. She works with eager hands. It should better be translated, she works with the pleasure of her hands. In other words, this is not a chore. This is a delight. This is a joy. She joyfully is devoted to her husband and to her family. She prepares, prepares food for them. 
Now, this doesn't mean that she can't uh, order out from Tzatziki's. This doesn't mean that she can't pick up something from the Chinese restaurant. But it does mean that, that she uh, takes great joy in providing food for her family. She's like a merchant ship. Because in those days, the marketplace was dependent on the farmers that were around it. But sometimes there were merchant ships that would come in from afar. And the author of this text says this woman is like that merchant ship. She goes and she finds the food that her family not only needs, but what they also enjoy. She takes great joy in providing something for her family that they rejoice in. She takes great joy in providing food for herself, for her husband, for her children, even for her servant girls. She gets up while it's still dark. She provides for the family. And this woman, she is so devoted to the family that she considers a field and buys it, verse 16. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. That's joyfully. That's eagerly. That's with a great deal of excitement and enthusiasm. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. To say that she has strong arms doesn't necessarily mean that she always goes to the gym, that she works out and has a hard bod, that somehow she always wears yoga pants and a t-shirt, whether she's in the gym or outside the gym. <laughs> I just think it means that, that she sees everything that's in front of her as a labor of love. And she is able to do it. She has such a great capacity to be devoted to her family and to serve them, to work in the home, to work outside the home. Everything she does, she is capable of doing. She sees that her trading is profitable. Her lamp doesn't go out at night. It's at this moment every mama can say amen because you never get a day off. You never get time away. You never get a vacation. Once a mama, always a mama. And this woman joyfully serves her family, even into the hours of the night. In her hand, she holds the distaff. She grasps the spindle with her fingers. She's providing clothing for her family. Look at verse 21, when it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. You ask the question, when does it snow in Jerusalem? Not often. But this woman is so devoted to her family that she's even preparing for that rare occurrence when it does snow. And when it does snow, nobody's afraid because she has woven together a fabric of scarlet. Nobody knows exactly what scarlet means. It's just a dark color. It implies a very warm cloth that even in the bitter cold, her family is provided for. She makes coverings for her bed. Now, she probably got it delivered from Amazon. Uh, she probably has more pillows on the bed than ever is needed by anybody sleeping in the bed, but that's okay. She makes coverings for the bed. She provides perfectly for the family. And this is an elegant gal. Because she can even be dressed and clothed in fine linen and purple. And in the evening, she can go out with her husband for a fine dinner or a banquet. And she is at home and comfortable in every scenario. Because she can wear fine clothes, fine linen, even dressed in purple. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies the merchants with sashes. This woman is a multitasker. She works inside the home. She works outside the home. This passage does not mandate 
that every godly wife must work outside the home, but it doesn't forbid it either. What's astounding about this woman is that she is so deeply devoted to her family that even as she works outside the home, that's not going to distract her number one devotion, which is to her family, to serve them faithfully. Oh, this woman, she can multitask. Every honest man I know marvels at the ability of his wife to juggle numerous things at the same time. Every honest man I know will have to say to his wife, you, you're, you're astounding, you, you're, you're amazing because of the way you can do this. Because us men, we, we can't do that. We can do our best. We may be able to juggle a handful of things, but not a dozen things at the same time. If you compare men and women to a computer, a woman can have numerous applications up simultaneously. And all of them are running, and she's giving all of her attention to every application that's on that computer screen. But as guys, as men, we have the capacity, maybe the flaw, to be able to shut down every application and just stare at the screensaver. And when asked the question, what are you thinking about? We can honestly say nothing. Because as men, we ain't thinking about anything. We are thinking about nothing. We're just staring at the screensaver. Jane Ellen will ask me, what are you thinking? And I'll say nothing. How can you be thinking about nothing? I don't know. It's just the way God made me. I have the capacity to think about nothing. I have the capacity to shut down all the applications and just stare at the screensaver. And Jane Ellen says, I wish I could do that, but I can't. And she really can't do it because she has the capacity to have all the applications up and running and giving herself fully to all of them simultaneously. This woman is deeply devoted. A godly wife not only has high character and deep devotion, but third, abundant generosity. Look with me at verse 20. She opens her arms to the poor. She extends her hands to the needy. This woman is not selfish. She is selfless. Remember, the king is telling his son, this is the type of woman that you want to bring home to meet mom and dad. You don't want to bring a person home that is so inwardly selfish. You want to bring somebody home that is selfless, that, that willingly, joyfully, eagerly is abundant in generosity. It's not what is mine. It's what can I give to help. So this woman opens her arms to the poor. She extends her hands to the needy. The fourth characteristic, a good wife possesses faithful instruction. Look with me at verses 25 and 26. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. The phrase that she can laugh at the days to come means that she can smile at the future. She ain't scared. She has nothing to fear. She's not afraid of COVID-19. She's not afraid of cancer. She's not afraid of sickness and sadness. She's not afraid of what the future holds. Why? Because she knows the one who holds the future in his hands. She knows God. And so his faithful instruction is on her lips. She teaches. Yes, she teaches her children. But one commentator said it this way, that faithful instruction is not just directed to the children. Sometimes that faithful instruction 
is even directed to her husband. And every husband I know, once again, who's honest, will say that even though I am to be called the spiritual leader of the house, my wife is a suitable helper. She comes and she helps me. She has better ideas than I have sometimes. Now, wives, don't get the big head. It's not that you nail it 100% of the time, all the time. Sometimes you're right. Sometimes he's right. But still, faithful instruction is always on your lips. The faithfulness, the kindness that tumbles out of this woman's mouth is evidence that it's embedded in her heart. You remember what Jesus said? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's stuffed inside of you will eventually come out verbally. Because this woman, she has faithful instruction that's on her mouth. And she teaches. And moms, you know this to be true. That some of your primary pupils the primary individuals that you disciple in the faith are those that you call daughter and son. You teach them. What a great joy. What a tremendous calling that you have. Both husband and wife are supposed to teach the truth of the faith to their children. Oh, but the wife, you, you've got a, a special calling to be able to communicate how God cares for his family. Because you demonstrate tenderness and kindness and forgiveness and eagerness to serve. And you have a great calling and you instill this idea of who God is and how he interacts with his children. You have the ability to instill that into your children long before your children can speak. And certainly long before your children can show appreciation. You don't do all you do, mom just to be appreciated by Junior and Sally. You do all you do because that's how God made you. That's what God has called you to do. And so you have a tremendous calling to be able to instill into your family what it looks like of how God interacts with his family, with his children. But there's also a fifth characteristic that the good wife possesses praiseworthy faith. Look at verses 28 through 31. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. Many women do noble things, but baby, you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she has earned. Let her works bring her praise at the city gate. This woman has a faith that's praiseworthy. It's a faith that's been deposited in her by the good gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gospel has been on display for her children to see, for her husband to see, for her co-workers to see as she works in the house, as she works outside the house, as she goes to the marketplace, as she sells the sashes or belts, as, as she does all of her things. Her, her faith is on display for everybody to see. And those who know her best her children and her husband, the children say, Mom, thank you. That's what it means to bless. Just to simply say, Mom, thanks. And on any day, it's this day, on Mother's Day, for children to say to their mom, Mom, thank you. 
Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the things I remember. Thank you for the things that I don't even remember. Thank you for doing the things that, 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 that you helped me to do that, that I, I just took for granted. I just want to thank you today. And husbands, this is a great day for you to say to your wife, baby, you surpass them all. Many women do noble things, but you, you're the best. Thank you. I love you. I appreciate you. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward that she has due. This woman is to be praised because of her faith. This faith that has been on display. The writer of the Proverbs says um, that charm and beauty Form and face, they're temporary, but faith is eternal. Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Charm and beauty, they can be touched and tainted and taken away. Charm and beauty can be robbed by sickness. Charm and beauty uh, can be stolen by an accident. Charm and beauty can wither with age. Charm and beauty can be consumed by death. But faith, faith is eternal. The faith that has been deposited in you by Christ is eternal. It will carry you in this day and all of these days until the Lord takes you home. Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I come to the end of this passage and I ask myself, what do people say about me? What do people say about you? What does your spouse say about you? What does your husband say about you? What does your wife say about you? What do your children say about you? If you work outside the home, what do your coworkers say about you? What does your boss say about you? Or if you're the boss, what do your employees say about you? What do you want them to say about you? And if there's a discrepancy between what they actually say about you and what you want them to say about you, then that's your homework. If you want to be known as generous, then be generous. If you want to be known as one who honors God, then honor God. If you want to be known as one who is patient, then demonstrate patience. What do they say about you? What do you want them to say about you? And if you're anything like me, you come to the end of this passage and you think to yourself, this is too much, I can't live up to this. I mean, there are some things that I do okay, but there are many things that I fail miserably at that are here listed in Proverbs 31, 10 to 31. And my friend, if you are feeling that way this morning, let me tell you that nobody can live up to this. Now that doesn't mean that you just throw up your hands and say, "Woo, great, I'm off the hook. I don't have to worry about Proverbs 31. No, you do have to worry about Proverbs 31. But this passage, like every passage in Scripture, points to the sole sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I told you these characteristics, they're not gender specific. The application of it is gender specific, but, but the, the characteristic, the principle is not gender specific. So think with me about this. It is Jesus 
who has high character. It is Jesus who is deeply devoted to the family of God. It is Jesus who offers an abundant generosity so that he lays his life down on a skull-shaped hill called Golgotha so that you as a sinner may be a saint in the eyes of God. It is Jesus who has faithful instruction on his lips and in his life. It is Jesus who possesses praiseworthy faith that you and I long for and seek after. This is a description of who Jesus is. And so you and I come to this passage and we say to King Jesus, Jesus, we are insufficient. I mean, we can't do all this in and of our own power, but it's only by your strength that we can be this person that you've called us to be. Friend, if you are in Christ, you will, you will forever either be an antagonist to sin or a slave to sin. Either you will fight against sin in your life or you'll be a slave to sin and throw up your hands and say, I just can't help myself. And oh, friend, if you're in Christ, if you know that Jesus paid it all and all to him, you owe sin and left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. If you know that Jesus is your King of kings and Lord of lords, if you know that this is the example of who Jesus is, then you have a desire and a longing to live like Jesus, look like Jesus, walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, and be like Jesus. So on this day, we simply say all to Jesus I surrender. And all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. And in his presence I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender it all. Today, my friend, whether you're a mother or a father, whether you're single, whether you're young, whether you're old, whoever you are, as you listen to my voice today, today I urge you, just like the king urged his son in this passage, I want you to surrender everything you are unto King Jesus, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this time of response. We pray that you're honored and glorified by who we are, by the decisions we make for you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.